Welcome to Vineyard Brisbane West podcast. It's great to have you with us. In this series, we dive deeper into the narratives we hold about God. Narratives play a fundamental role in forming our identity, both for the positive or the negative. So join us over the coming weeks as we explore the character of God displayed in the life and mission of Jesus. looking at uh, this series is specifically about the truth of God as seen in the life and mission of Jesus, right? Um, And previously we've looked at a few things. The first thing we've looked at is God is good even in the midst of circumstances and complexities that we find ourselves in. We've been encouraged to posture ourselves and our thinking in God's proven goodness, right? To remember the things that God has done for us things he keeps coming back to us and reminding us of his goodness and when things aren't going right we've been reminded to pray that God's will his perfect will will happen amongst us even in those situations what we learned in that God is good is that God's goodness has already come in Jesus right so we have something we can hold on to but it is also coming and it is also at hand We've looked at God's trustworthiness and his generosity. And the context of those was that God is trustworthy and generous, even when other narratives are trying to convince us that he's not, right? Those narratives often try and lead us into doing things our own way or in our own thinking or in our own timing. Jonathan challenged us not to hold on to things. That was a really tricky one to hear. Don't hold on to things. Don't hold on to your rights. Don't hold on to your precepts. Release them. Release them to the Lord. Release them in your heart. Release them in your mind. And we do this because God loves us and he will take care of us. And we can work things through him. Joe led us in the last series the last session of the series there, on the character of God, not only as loving, but as the complete representation of what it is to be love and to be loving. The loving God is the perfect representation of love, which all other love is then measured by. So today's session actually dovetails off the back of that a little bit, um, where we're looking at God as a self-sacrificing God, which seems a little bit strange, right? How can God sacrifice himself? We'll find out about that shortly. So we've been starting each session reading Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. So let's refresh, let's refresh our memories. I've got a legit Bible here today, so I'm going to do my best to try and, try and read that. Now this one's uh, N.T. Wright's version of the New Testament called the Kingdom New Testament, so I'm going to, uh, I think I've translated it up there in the top, so you can follow along if you like. In many ways and in many means, God spoke in ancient times to our ancestors in the prophets, but at the end of these days, he has spoken to us in a son, 
He appointed his son to be heir of all things. Through him, in addition, he created the worlds. He is the shining reflection of God's own glory, the precise expression of his very own being. And he sustains all things through his powerful word or by the power of his word. So what we see there is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's being. And the Son sustains all things by the power of his word. So if we look to understand Jesus then, if we look at his actions and his words, we should get a clear understanding of who God the Father is, right? And the nature of God's spirit. Okay, so Luke 9, we're in verse 18. It says, when Jesus was praying alone, his disciples gathered around him. And Jesus says, who do the crowds say I am? John the Baptist, they responded, and others say Elijah. Others say that you are one of the ancient prophets that has arisen. Verse 20. What about you, Jesus said? Who do you say I am? Notice that Peter pipes up, which is good. He's always got something to say, young Peter. He says, you're God's Messiah. And then Jesus gave them strict and careful instructions not to tell this to anyone. It's always a strange thing, isn't it? Jesus says that. Verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the legal experts. He must be killed and he will be raised on the third day. He then spoke to them all. If any of you want to come after me, he said, you must say no to yourselves and pick up your cross every day and follow me. Right. So many of us have already heard that story before. What happened before the story was that God the Father actually had just done a truly amazing miracle among the people. Right? We see that Jesus gives thanks for a boy's lunch. And he says to the disciples, right, I eat a lot. You go out and feed the people. And they were like, okay, no worries. So they go and do it. The Spirit of God multiplies. And each time they tear off some fish and each time they tear off some bread, or more appears, right? This is a miracle of God the Father. More than 5,000 men, some translations say people, others say men. Right? We can likely say that it was a lot more than 5,000 people, so men, women, and children. So after this, amazing miracle. I can often can't find enough food in the freezer when someone pops over, right? Let alone feeding 5,000. So I was pretty amazed at the miracle. What we see with Jesus is he retreats. He's like, okay, that was pretty cool. It's time for me to just go and chill out, right? Go and take some time. I need to pray, hang out with my father. Imagine the first words. Hey, Dad, that was awesome, Right? That was cool. Now, that was the second time that Jesus has done it. First time he did it, about 4,000. Next time, about 5,000. Right? So the disciples finally catch up with Jesus. And they gather around him. And he asks them this really strange question. Not, how awesome was that, guys? What was it like to hand out a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and watch everyone eat, right? That wasn't the discussion. The discussion was, who do the people say I am? Seems like Jesus has gotten insecure all of a sudden, right? He's trying to work out, what's everyone think about me? 
But Jesus' question here wasn't really focused on that. What it was focused on was he wanted to find out the narratives that people were saying. He was looking for a feedback loop, in other words, right, from the disciples. Now, if you just imagine you're a disciple and you're going out and handing out things, you're just going to hear things, right? You're going to hear things that other people say. Wow, that's awesome. Who is this guy? He must be Elijah. Oh, no, he must be a prophet of old, right? So all of this discussion is going on. So he asked them, who do they say I am? Now, in essence, really what he's asking is, how does the crowd see God at work upon the earth? Right? Does that make sense? And then the following question to that is, how does the crowd understand God to rule as king? Now, if you were king and you just dished out 5,000 meals, plus big barbecue, people are going to think you're, it's all right, hey, this dude's a good king, or this lady's a great queen. Two important questions that Jesus asks here. But Jesus seems to ask, who do the crowds say that I am? And again, he's looking for a feedback loop. And he's looking to find out what are the rumours after the 5,000 people have been fed. Now, if you've read any of the Gospels, you'll realise that the crowd are a really funny bunch. right? Actually a little bit bipolar. A lot bipolar, I should say. They're known for taking two extreme forms in the Gospels. The first one is that they follow people, right? That's amazing. That's really good. And then they also lead each other, right? Now, in the circumstances where they follow Jesus, everything seems to go okay. But there are eight occasions where the crowd decide, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill this guy that we've been following, who's done all these amazing miracles. We're going to kill him right now. They're bipolar. And so Jesus is trying to work out, are they this way today or are they that way? Are they doing okay or is my life in jeopardy? Right? But that's not really the question he's asking. Now, in Mark 5, what it tells us is that the crowd who followed Jesus actually consisted of an extremely different mix of people. There were those who were there to learn, there were those who were mourning. There were those who needed healing, those who needed deliverance. Skeptics followed Jesus. The hungry followed Jesus. Why wouldn't you, right, if he's putting on a meal like that? You just turn up for the food, right? There were people who were humble and thirsty. We see that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There were those who were prideful and arrogant. Heaps of fights broke out in these crowds, right? There were loners, outcasts. There were the special and the knowledgeable, in brackets, those who knew. There were the rich. But there were also the majority who actually were considered not much more valuable than the dirt under your shoes, right? Societal outcasts and misfits, the ones who were the nobodies. But the interesting thing is, Jesus says, who does the crowd, the collective, say that I am? Right? The three main answers that come back were John the Baptist, Elijah, 
and an ancient prophet, right? Now, these titles, they represented past heralds. So what I mean by the term herald is someone who comes to speak on behalf of God. Okay? So those three represented the past heralds of God's word to his people throughout Israel's history. Right? So refresh your memory. John the Baptist calls those people who are listening, repent because the kingdom of God is near. Elijah called the nation of Israel to rethink their worship of Baal and Asherah. Uh, his call back to worship Yahweh was because they were worshipping demonic gods. And they were acting in ways that mirrored the nations around them. Now, Israel was supposed to be consecrated, right? Set apart, God's people. So we see that Elijah often confronted Israel and said, hey, you guys are set apart. You're special. You're supposed to serve the living God, and yet you're serving idols, right? Demonic gods. So this was the lens in which the crowds saw Jesus. He's a prophet. He's God's herald, right? The one who brings God's words and God's power. So Jesus moves then from kind of a wide-angled lens, right, by asking the crowds. He says, now who do you say that I am? in the next section. And Peter jumps in because he's always got something to say. And he says, you're God's Messiah, right? Now, for you and me who read that, we go, well, that's, you know, obvious. Right? We, got the, we got the end of the book. Of course he's God's Messiah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay? Peter was in Jesus' closer teaching circle. So he was on the inner of the disciples. Now, there weren't, there weren't the outer in disciples, in Jesus' disciples. They were just the ones that followed more closely and did a, more of the, the work alongside Jesus than the others. Right? So we know that Peter was inside Jesus' closer teaching circle. And so it means that um, he would have had more offline conversations with Jesus about things. Right, where they walked places and they travelled together. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about travelling in a group. Like when we are in New Zealand, there were 18 of us there, right? All of the offline conversations around meal was, was just amazing, right? You get to know people in a deeper way and all those sorts of things. So Peter was in the inner, in the inner circle in many ways. So he had a pretty good insight into how Jesus did things and how he thought. But this was not the revelation of Peter being a close friend of Jesus. This was the revelation of the Holy Spirit who had illuminated Peter's heart and his mind. Right? So it's a Holy Spirit moment. Now, when Peter says, you are God's Messiah, really what he's saying here is all of the prophetic visions that have ever been declared, that have been written down on scrolls, and have been prayed for generations and generations and generations, all the way back to the prophecies of Daniel and even the ones before that. Here stands that person, right? So the promises of old have come true. And those promises were God has come to save us. He's not just come to correct our ways or reorientate our thinking, which Jesus 
did in many ways. But what they understood was that the King of Kings, God's chosen ruler, the Messiah who rides with angel armies, he leads with fire and a cloud. That dude is present right here before us. The living God who parted the sea and brought our ancestors out of slavery, that dude standing right before us, right? Now, all the mothers at the time were thinking, I've got to get my sons next to that guy, right? And we see in Matthew 20, the mother of James and John, she was a very smart businesswoman. She rolls up to Jesus and she says, hey, grant us a special favour, would you please? My son to the left, the other son to the right. Right? She knew what was going on here. This is a big deal. Really big deal. And Jesus says, the left and the right are not mine. Right? To a point. Therefore my father to a point. That would have been a tough one. Right? But the revelation of Peter here is the revelation of the biggest event in human history, right? There's no greater revelation happening than right now. So, think about the anticipation. All of the pennies are dropping. Everyone's finally seeing Jesus and he says, now don't tell anybody. Shh. You've got to keep that quiet. As if, as if they're going to be able to do that, right? As if the biggest thing in human history is happening right now. And you want me not to tweet about it, right? Or tell all of my friends or whatever it is, right? Big, big statement. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says this. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the legal experts. He must be killed, raised up on the third day. Man, this makes no sense. Now, in Matthew's writing, Peter turns to Jesus and says... No way, you can't die. And the famous words of Jesus turn around and says, get behind me, Satan, right? Well, it's not recorded in Luke. But what they were thinking was, and what Peter was expressing was, hang on, how can the king of kings, who is the deliverer of this nation, die? That is a crazy, outrageous statement. How could the deliverer that's been promised generation after generation die? It's not possible. Jesus is gone out of his mind. How could the king of kings who passed the Red Sea, how could anyone possibly kill him? Right? He just took on Egypt all by himself. Trashed them all. But more than that, how could this God, who is holy, die at the hands of the corrupt the arrogant or the self-righteous, right? They heard everything up to he must be killed and they stopped listening on he'll be raised up on the third day, okay? Now, you and I would have done the same thing, so we're not giving them a hard time. If you were in that moment, there is no possible way that you would have thought dying is the answer to the solution, But Jesus is leading them in this and us to a really important 
truth about our lives here and the way the kingdom of God works. So I've put a little diagram together. I hope this works. Ah, no, it didn't work. I'll try again. Here we go. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is the shape that the crowd tried to fit Jesus in. Okay? So understand them as boxes, right? In which the crowd was trying to understand who this Jesus guy is, right? They tried to fit him into the prophet box, okay? And that meant that his words and actions displayed power, okay? But he wasn't God's son. He was a prophet. He was sent by God, all right? Now, what were the prophets known for? Well, it's still a pretty good title in many ways, okay? Prophets were known for words and actions through God's mighty power. So here are some examples. The prophets caused uh, a drought to come onto the land due to King Ahab's continued sins, right? So they could declare over the dirt, stay dry, and it happens. That's a pretty serious amount of power, right? My favourite one was fire came from heaven and consumed sacrifices when they hosed it down, right? Completely drenched. God's fire comes down, consumes the, uh, consumes the sacrifice. Um, the prophets provided water in the desert. They actually parted the Jordan River so they could walk across it on dry land. That's pretty cool, right? That'd be useful at times. Don't want to get my shoes wet. Part and walk through. Um, the prophets were known for food and provisions being multiplied by impossible means. The prophets healed diseases that were incurable. So think about Naaman, who's a Gentile, which Gentile translated in that language was dog. Right? And then God's prophet heals him. So he's going to bathe in the Jordan, which it's not very nice. But God heals him, right? And then the last one, which was cool, an axe head floated on top of the water. Right, so that's pretty cool. So if you've been given a title as a prophet, you, you, you're a powerful person. Right? So this was the shape that the broader crowd was placing Jesus in. Okay? Now, the reason they did that is because Jesus' life actually measured up to doing these things. He fed the poor. He did miracles. He healed those who had incurable things, those who were blind those who had leprosy, those sorts of things, right? So they were right to attribute some prophetic power to him, right? It wasn't wrong, but it didn't necessarily represent the whole thing. So the next one, which shape did Peter try and fit Jesus into? Peter's shape was... Jesus is God's son. He's going to be our ruling king. Right? So would we say that that's true? We would say that's true, right? God's son. He's going to be the ruling king. And what he attributed, this is not a word, okay? <laughs> but how else do you describe being a king? What do you do? You do the action of... Kinging, right? 
Anyone else got another word for it? Oz lost this afternoon. I was like, <laughs> right? So the words and action of being a king, doing king stuff, right? Making king degrees, all those kinds of things, right? Reigning. Yeah. Okay. Reigning. So the words and actions of king being a king. Now, Peter hadn't received this revelation by himself. Okay? He'd received the, the idea and the concept that Jesus was the ruling king from the Holy Spirit. So it was a good, it was a good, good place to be, right? How he interpreted it, he, reter- he interpreted it through the Jewish worldview, right? And that worldview was that God's son would come and would overthrow his enemies, right? Military power, and he would destroy the other nations, just as kings have destroyed their nation and other nations. Power. So Jesus the Messiah would deliver the Jews. It would be through military power and it would usher in the Messianic age. Okay, so that was a really important age, the Messiah, the Messianic age. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, and these are the traits that follow or come with the Messiah. So he would correctly interpret sorry, the law of Moses and he would restore the monarchy of Israel and he would judge mankind, right? So all good things, all things now we've read the end of the story, we see Jesus did. So Peter's on the right track. So he was right in the revelation of Jesus. Jesus would overthrow his enemies. He would actually rule with all power. He would deliver his followers. He would usher in the Messianic age and he would fulfill the law of Moses. But just like the crowds, the interpretation and the application were skewed by cultural misunderstanding. Where we take our own culture and we apply it to our own worldview, right? That's what was going on here. So if we sum up the crowds in Peter's view, what we can see is that well, we should ask ourselves a question. How would God come upon the earth and how would he rule as king? Well, we would sum them up through the shape of power and lording from the top down. Those two placed together gives us words and actions of power and words and actions of kinging from the top down. Right? So it is true that God rules with all power. And God is Lord over all. Yet what we see is that these were not the shapes in which Jesus chose. Let's have a look at the one that Jesus chose. This is the shape that Jesus chooses to fit himself into. Jesus responds to the disciples by saying, I must suffer at the hands of power. And I must do it to show you that real power, real power is revealed through self-sacrifice, not through self-promotion. If I paraphrase our favourite scripture that all of us learnt when we were kids, for God so loved, he sacrificed himself where no one else could and no one else would so that anyone who would believe in his love and sacrifice would come alive in the power of eternal life. 
John 3.16. So what Jesus is saying here is that he would fulfill the law of the prophets. But he would do it through self-sacrifice. He would judge humanity by way of sacrificing himself for humanity. He would usher in the kingdom rule of God by sacrificing his glory and his place of prominence and his honour. And he would do it so that he could restore those who have been disgraced and dishonoured and shamed. Self-sacrifice. Jesus shows us that to be a true image bearer of God actually reflects self-sacrifice. So in a culture where everyone demands respect, they demand authority, I need to be honoured for the things I've done. Look at my effort. Look at my achievement. How dare you disrespect me? You don't know who you're talking to. Jesus turns the tables and he says, well, actually, real power comes from the Father in heaven and is perfected in self-giving sacrifice when you serve another. So Jesus is contrasting the power here, the power of the kingdom of God, with the power revealed in the three labels, the elders, the chief priests, and the experts in the law. All three of them, their identity is centred in power and position, in rulership, in decision-making. Look at my good decisions. I stand and I pray to the Lord in front of everyone all day. Look at me. Look how pure and perfect I am. Problem was, they got there from who they knew. They got there from who they killed. Did you know Jesus was not the first Messiah to roll into Jerusalem 50 years before he did? There were hundreds of them who claimed to be the Messiah. Where were they? They all died. Do you know why? Chief priests, experts of the law, they killed them. Right? Jesus was not a one of the kind. He was the one of the many in that regard. They didn't like those who opposed power. Oops, he missed his breakfast. He tripped over a rock. They had worked the hardest. And they used anyone they could to maintain their power and position. Now, in Jesus' day, these three positions were the highest that the Jews held. So the Jewish nation has been an occupied nation for a long time. So what Jesus says here is, have a look. This is how God comes in power. He arrives in a manger. In a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. He gets raised by a no, nobody parents. But that nobody turns out to serve all of humanity through his self-sacrifice. And as a result, humanity comes to life. And it is through God's power and his eternal life that we see that the shape of the cross, self-sacrifice, actually sets us free. So if I open to Hebrews 
2. You don't need to go there, I can just read it for us. Look at verse 14, it says this. Since the children, okay, so that's you and me, share in blood, in flesh and blood, he too, meaning Jesus, shared in them also, just in the same way, so that through death, self-sacrifice, in other words, he might destroy the one who has the what? Power. Right? Self-sacrifice destroys what? Power. The power of death, and that is the devil. And he set free the people from the power of death and all who lived lives underneath the power of slavery because of the fear of death. It's obvious, you see, that he isn't taking special thought for angels. He's taking special thought for Abraham's family. And that's why he had to be like his brothers and sisters, like you and me, in every way, so that he might become merciful and trustworthy. He must become a high priest in God's presence to make atonement for the sins of the people. He himself has suffered, you see, though being put to the test, and that's why he is able to help us who are tested right now. So, after that long pause, here's the takeaway for us. Jesus' self-sacrifice breaks the power of death in our lives. And he invites us to continue to break the power of death through our self-sacrifice as we love and serve others. See that? Jesus self-sacrificed, death becomes broken. When we self-sacrifice, death becomes broken in us and in others. That's the pattern. So this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And this is what it actually looks like to be a new human being. The new Adam that is often described. This is what it looks like to be a daughter and a son of God. Self-sacrificing. Now, Jesus continues by laying out a blueprint, which was extremely countercultural back then. But let's be honest, it's really countercultural for us today. And he says in Luke 9 23, so it's just one verse after what we read earlier today. It says, If any of you want to come into the life of the resurrection, you must say no to the power of self righteousness, self improvement. Self-awakening, self-realization, self-actualization, and crucify self on the cross. Whoa. Whoa. That's not what my social media feed says. (laughs) Self-actualization, baby. Right? Self-realization, self-improvement. It's all for you to do. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, hang it up on the cross. There's nothing good in self, right? Everything's in self-sacrifice. If you aspire to be great in the kingdom, we know this verse, you must become a what? Servant of all. This is the shape of God coming into the earth. Self-sacrifice. 
This is the shape of God's ruling kingdom. Self-sacrifice. This is the shape of Jesus's, of God's son, Jesus. This is the shape of whom God is forming us into. Right? People who self-sacrifice. Now, I don't imagine this sermon's going to go viral. <laughs> right? So how do we know? You might want to just quiz me. Dan, show me the bit in the Bible where when I self-sacrifice, right, that I'm going to come out good on the other side. Well, let's have a look at Hebrews 1 and 3, part B. We read <coughs> up to it today, and we've read it every single time we have come across the good and beautiful God series. This is what it says, and I'm going to add some extra bits in here. Okay, I'm not adding to Scripture. I'm just adding what we've talked about and fitting it in. After he, it says, Jesus had accomplished the cleansing needs for sins. In other words, after Jesus had suffered at the hands of corrupted power and he took upon himself the sin and corruption of the whole world and he sacrificed it on the cross in self-sacrifice, after he had completed that and done that, it said God raised him from the dead and Jesus sat down at the right hand, the right hand, the power side, right? The power side of the majesty supreme. Sounds like a cool place. Sounds like James's and John's mum knew exactly what that meant, right? She had an idea of what it meant to sit there. She said, let the good son sit this side and let the dodgy one sit that side, right? That's what she was saying. So she knew what this meant. It was no accident. And the writer of Hebrews says, now see how much greater he is. So the fulfillment of Jesus' life as God's son comes completely and wholly as one of self-sacrifice. You are only saved by his sacrifice, right? Not your effort, not your wisdom, not your skills. They're all wonderful things, right? The only thing that makes you and I family is that self-sacrifice on the cross. The only thing. So here's the challenge for you and for me. If we want to be great, and we want to have great relationships and we want to have great families, if we aspire to have a great church community or school community or workplace community, if we aspire to be in a financially healthy community, right? If we aspire for change, we want to see good things in our lives, in those around us, for our children and our grandchildren, there's only one thing for us to do. We have to nail ourselves and our selfish ambitions and all of our self-improvement, self-actualization, self-realization, self-awareness, anything that's got self in front of it, to the cross. Because self grabs for power, and self grabs for position, and self will do it at whatever cost, uh, even the cost of another person's life. Right? Self has no bounds. 
a self-sacrificing God. Now just think about it. God didn't need to do anything in human history. I just want to say that. God could have created Adam and Eve and it all went sideways and he could have just walked away, let the world burn. Right? Nah, stuff it. They bond it. Or just let them duke it out. Right? It's not the God we serve. He says, no, no, I'll go in and I'll sacrifice everything I have so they can have what I have. So, if we want genuine breakthrough in all the things I mentioned earlier, it's got to start with self-sacrifice. There's just no other place. So what's the false narratives that we hold? False narrative, cultural narrative, social media narrative, political narrative, whatever narrative you want to call it. Me first. Right? That's the false narrative. The false narrative promises you, you'll have a good and beautiful life if you put you first. Right? Self-actuate. Your life will be good. The false premise underneath that is that we get some sort of meaning and value through our self-righteousness or our self-improvement or our self-actualization. Now, I just want to full stop for a minute. It's completely fine for you to prioritize yourself, okay? It's completely fine for you to say, I'm a mum of four and I'm taking a walk around the block. Okay? That's completely okay. But that's not what we're talking about here. So don't mix the the two, right? It's when we demand the way that we understand something and the way we want something needs to be done that way. That's what I'm talking about by self. But the corresponding truth here is that God has sacrificed his life, glory, and his honour for the sake of our eternal life, right? If Jesus didn't self-sacrifice, we spend eternity completely separated from the Father. There was no way and no means for us to make it to the Father, right? So, pretty important. So, the truth here is that our life on earth is to mirror Jesus' example. Now, we know that. We hear that every Sunday, you know. But what we can forget sometimes is eternal life actually flows from our decision to sacrifice self. And we are to sacrifice self in service to God and in service to others. So, besides the interlude in the middle, sorry about that, why don't we stand? So in our series we've been having a look at the false narratives and having a look at the true narratives displayed in the life of Jesus. And in the previous ones, um, we've invited the Holy Spirit to bring a narrative that's come to mind. Well, in this one, the narrative is self, right? Now, you might have some way that self manifests in your life where you're like, yeah, I think I'm pretty selfish when I demand these things, 
that might come to mind, so you can fit that in this if you choose. Now, what I also want to suggest is that um, I've probably, like it has for me, I have probably challenged some of our identity in here. Now, what we've come to realise is that any time you challenge something that's connected to our identity, it normally gets fortified. We call this a stronghold, right? It's biblical. You can see it all through Scripture. It says at times that people's hearts were hardened towards God. That is when God calls out something in their identity and they're not ready to deal with it. It becomes fortified and their heart grows hard. Right? It's called a stronghold. So I can appreciate that for some of us in this room, reading this is going to be ingenuine. And you might say, I'm not, going to, I'm not doing this now right? because I'm offended in some way or I've got to work through this in some way, or whatnot. And what I want to extend to you is, it's okay, right? Take one of the sheets, the same prayer is on the bottom. What I encourage you to do is sit before the Lord and just allow him to bring freedom, right? Because that's what he does. He gives us a small kick up the pants so that we can actually live in the way we were designed to do it. Because really, we do want healthy communities, right? No one wants difficult relationships and no one wants right, the things that we often find ourselves in. We actually want God to work in those areas. We want our lives to look different. So there's no pressure on you from me to read it. And what I encourage you to do on the bottom of the page is to take it home and pray about it. Because right? where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But what I do want to do is pray it together for those who who are like, yeah, that's me, I think I think God's speaking to me. So I'm going to read it along with this, um, and uh, let's go together. Lord, I confess that I have allowed false narratives to affect the way that I relate to you. I have believed the lie that I am the most important person in the world and that I need to empower self in my life. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for receiving this false narrative for living my life based on it, and for any way I have judged others because of it. I receive your forgiveness. I renounce and break my agreement with this narrative and any powers of darkness behind it. And I choose to accept, believe, and receive the truth that Jesus sacrificed himself for me, and you call me to sacrifice myself for you and for your kingdom, that I may live now in eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And we just want to acknowledge, Lord, that without that, we were all lost. All of us. And Lord, we also want to acknowledge that we are friends and we are family in this room because of your self-sacrifice.